Well, let's review a little bit. Um, last week, I don't know about you, but I thought last week was one of the best messages that uh, Paul has brought, and it really, really uh, taught me something. Um, and last week, Paul spoke on living outside ourselves, and uh, when I saw that title, I really didn't know exactly where he was going with it. But the main point was, and we'll see how well you listened, that we die daily to self. That's right. We die daily to self. Here's some things that I wrote down from last week that really impacted me. Number one, culture has a high value on self, but the Lord wants us to live outside ourselves. Number two, the Holy Spirit desires for us to become something different. He wants us to fight the battle between the old nature and the new nature and to die to self. What exactly are we being called to do? We're being called to give up, to sacrifice. So what does that really mean for us today? Scripture has much to say about what Jesus asked us to do. And in this week's study, in this week's study, we're going to learn what it means to die to self. So let's go to the Word now. We're going to go to to Galatians, the book of Galatians. We're going to go to chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20. It's a simple verse. It's a verse that I learned a long time ago. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Those are some heavy words. I've been crucified. The cross is a symbol of crucifixion. And you know, when the choir sings, sometimes this cross gets buried back here. So I think as we're speaking about the cross, I hadn't planned to do this, but when I was sitting over there, I thought, wow, the cross is like in the back, and we're talking about it. But it's become a symbol of crucifixion. What Jesus did for us on the cross. So today we need that cross to be central in what we do. There's many ways that uh, the cross has been shown to us in the culture of today. One of the ways that we have is that the cross is found in jewelry. I'm sure Tom sees a few crosses go out of his shop. And you know, it was interesting. I did an internet study this week about what does the cross mean when you wear it? And it's all across the board. Some people wear it because of their faith, as a symbol of their faith. And one of the trends right now is in jewelry is a cross laid on its side. And what does that mean? And there's all sorts of different people thinking all sorts of different things about what that means. So jewelry is one way, but I don't know if for most people if it's they understand the full meaning behind it. How about art? You know, you got to love old art. You know, some of this old art, they put Jesus up on the cross, but it doesn't show any of the pain and the agony that went along with the cross. It shows him hanging there. Some of the newer art that we see today actually takes it to the extreme and uh, actually has a little bit of a gore factor to it. Probably the most effective thing that we have, that I've ever seen, the most realistic depiction, is found in the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. You see, the cross was a barbaric tool of torture, used to punish criminals to the point of death. It was a long and painful process, 
I didn't realize this, but death could take up to three days to occur on a cross. And then when you died, the Romans left you hanging there for all to see. Quite often the cross was right along a public road going into the city. So that when people walked by, there was a constant reminder of what happened if you went against the laws of Rome. Because people were hanging there dead. This death that Jesus died, and here in Galatians, He is calling us to die with Him. In Galatians, it's not a physical death, but it's a spiritual death. A.W. Tozer refers to it as living the crucified life. He has a book called The Crucified Life. If any of you want to be challenged, I recommend that you go get that book. I'll tell you what, it will rock you. Because as as we live that crucified life, there's some things that are required of us. So today we have a decision to make. Are we going to embrace the cross? Or are we going to walk away from it? There's really only two things that you can do. That's a challenging question. And as I dug deeper into the scripture this week, I found that Jesus made many statements about how we live our lives that will challenge us. So as we speak of embracing the cross, there's some important groundwork that must be laid before we understand what it truly means to live the crucified life. You can write this down, that Jesus is calling us to embrace the calling of the cross. To embrace the calling of the cross. Let's take another look at the text. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's no way that we can read this verse and think that Jesus is speaking to anybody but me but you. This is definitely an individual verse. It's not a verse for us as the corporate church where we can hide in the background. Jesus is talking directly to us. When you break this down, and if some of you are English guys, this is you're going to love this part. It's going to make you tingle because we're going to take a look at the first person pronouns that are in this verse. And it was striking to me. We can count them. We can see it one more time. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's all directed to me and to you individually. There's seven first-person pronouns. The text doesn't deal with any plurality at all. It doesn't mention someone else or a third party. The apostle speaks purely of himself, his own inner life, his own spiritual death, the love of Christ to him, and the great sacrifice that Christ made for him. This is important. For the verse is speaking to each of us personally. And because of that, it requires a personal response. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's clear that Christ is calling us into a personal relationship with Him. In Romans 10 we read, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, 
resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We need to come face to face with the cross. We must acknowledge that Jesus died and that he was risen from the dead. We must confess his lordship with our mouths. And we must believe with our heart. We must come to the foot of the cross. It requires faith. Because coming to church will not bring you salvation. Good works, doing good things. A lot of people say, well, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm good enough. I do good things. I haven't killed anybody, but that doesn't bring you salvation. Hanging out with other Christians, that doesn't bring you salvation. Having Christian parents, that doesn't bring you salvation. Going to a Christian school, that doesn't bring you salvation. There's only one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We must come to the foot of the cross for salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for us. This morning, if you have not personally confessed Jesus as Lord, and if you have not believed with your heart, today can be the day of salvation for you. At the end of the message, we're going to have a time of prayer. We would love to pray for you. God's speaking to you today. If His Spirit, if you feel that little uneasiness and you want to know more, that's because His Holy Spirit is speaking directly to your heart. Don't let that opportunity pass you by. This can be the day of salvation for you. Let's look at the second half of the passage. And it says, we already know that I've been crucified with Christ, that we have that relationship with Him. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself up for me. Jesus calls us into a relationship with Him. But then Jesus calls us to live in faith in that relationship and to grow in our faith. Let's take a look at the screen. I'm going to go through a few verses pretty quickly here. Let's see what the Scripture says about growing. In Matthew 5, verse 6, It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. How many of us have been so hungry that we have hunger pains? That's the same feeling we need to have for the righteousness of God. We need to hunger and thirst. Our mouth needs to be dry for His Word, Lord. We need to be filled with that. We need that relief. Let's go to 1 Peter 2, 2 2-3. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If indeed you have come into relationship with the Lord, you need to get into His Word. You need that spiritual milk. Because that helps us to grow in our faith. The hardest thing about growing is that sometimes we think that we have grown up. But in our spiritual faith, we never have grown up. There's always a new truth in God's Word. There's always something that we can, that we can come to and be satisfied. Proverbs 3, 5-6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart 
And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. This, to me, is one of the greatest barriers to living the crucified life. Living in our own understanding. Sometimes God calls us to do things that don't fit in to our logic, that don't fit into our plan. We need to live in His understanding, not our understanding. Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we lean not on 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 our understanding, but on His understanding, it's because we've been transformed by the renewing of our minds. The only way we can be made new is to have new information poured into us. The only way we can do that is through God's Word. Psalms 1, 1-3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This verse has just a ton of truth in it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So many times we make life decisions. And the important thing is that who do we ask? Who do we seek advice from? Who do we get counsel from? Can't just be good people. Because the Bible says that above all else, if left to its own desires, the human heart is by its very nature wicked. We need to come to the Lord. We need to come to a trusted believer who we know is well-rooted in the Lord. And then we can't stand in the way of sinners. It's about how we live our lives. God calls us to walk in His way, not in the way of sinners. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditates day and night. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind because we are in His Word and meditating on it day and night. I read that one and I said, okay, Lord. I don't meditate day and night on your word. So often, when you work in ministry or when you're a student, you find your time in the word becomes part of your job as you prepare for the week, as you prepare for a class. The Lord really spoke to my heart and said, you need to spend time in my word just to learn for my sake. And I love the last part, though, because it says that He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. And you can see the image in your mind of a nice river coming by and there's a tree planted right next to it. And its roots go deep down into the ground, down into the moisture, down into the Word. For us, it would be equal to the Word and how we're being fed. Because that water never stops flowing, we are rooted in that and we grow. And then it says, 
that you yield its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. We must not be stagnant. We must grow. We must be fed by the word of God. We must give him our time together in study and in prayer. We must be fed. That is why such actions as spending time in God's word, spending time in prayer, fasting, praying, these are all called spiritual disciplines. And as we are disciplined in what we do, we are drawn close to the Lord. And he begins to change our hearts. Nobody said that this is an easy process. And Scripture shows us what's required of us. We are required to embrace the cost of the cross. So for many years, since 1972, since 1972, we have been able to tune in on our TV every day of the week to hear those words, come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. And Bob Barker has become a household name, and it's not because he urges you to have your pets spayed and neutered. It's because he helps you to know what the right price is. And you can go on his show. If, you, if you're if you lucky, you're drawn into that front row. How many of us have sat and watched that? And then he says, he brings out an item and he says, how much is this bottle of water? And you come up and you say, you, you put your bid in. And whoever gets it right, you get closest to the actual retail price without going over. You get a chance to go up on the stage. And then you get a chance to win more prizes. Because why? You know what the price is of the items that you're looking at. I remember the game where they have the little mountain climber and he climbs up. And it's on the dollars. As you, you, you pick the price of this thing and you're right and it climbs up. But you can't go over or he falls off. you got to know the cost. And then if you win those games, you get a chance to go on the, the big wheel. And you spin the wheel and the dollars. Get. If you win that, you get to go to the showcase showdown. And in the showcase showdown, wow, you could win all sorts of stuff. You get trips and money and motorcycles and a new car. But you've got to know what the price is in order to win. And guess what? It's that way in life too, isn't it? If we're going to be successful in our Christian walk, we need to know what the cost is. If we're going to live the crucified life, We need to know what the cross is. Being a music guy, I have to put some music into this message. So I'm going to take you back a few years. I don't think people like Adam Lopez were probably even alive when this song was written. But uh, this was written in the early 1980s. And the song is called Count the Cost. And I just want you to listen to the lyric because it really is profound. And it says you got to count the cost if you're going to be a believer. you got to know that the price is the one you can afford. You've got to count the cost if you're going to be a believer. You've got to go all the way if you really love the Lord. He never said it would be easy. He never promised a free ride. There's a costly fee if you want to be on His side. And the Father knows the cost because His only Son was the price. And when he says, follow me, he's asking a man his life. 
The requirements of being crucified with Christ is serious. We need to count the cost of the cross, what is required of us, what the Lord is asking us to give to Him. I want us to turn to Luke chapter 14, third book of the New Testament. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. This is a challenging passage. Um, It really lays out what God is expecting of us. It starts out by saying, now with large crowds, we're going along with him. At this point in his ministry, Jesus had quite a following, a large following of people. And as he went from town to town, these people would come along with them, and they had all sorts of different reasons for being there. Some thought that he was the king of Israel who was going to defeat the Romans. So they were excited to be there for that. They wanted to be a part of that. Some of them followed him because he was popular. At this point in his ministry, Jesus had been doing healing and the word had gotten out and he was the cool guy to follow. So there were people who were following him. They didn't know what they believed or why they believed, but they were his followers and they were there. There were other people like his disciples who followed him because they were passionate about what he did. So in this passage, Jesus is starting to to communicate with these people. And I really look at it as he's saying, I'm going to lay out what's required of you being here with me. Because I don't think some of you really want this path. So large crowds are going along with them. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whew. <laughs> I read that. And I'm like, whoa. How does this work? Number one, earlier in Scripture, We see him talking about honoring your mother and father. We see him talking about loving your wife as as Christ loved the church. Well, how do you hate those people? It doesn't match up. But it's something that he said to do. As you look in the background to the text, as you look back in the original language, you see that this is not a literal hating, as in I don't love you. It's where you put your family in priority. Does my family come first? Does their protection come first? And then we deal with, then we deal with what the cross requires. Then we deal with Jesus. Or do we put Jesus first and then we put our family underneath? And I'll tell you what, there's that, uh, there is a, a little model that you see where it says God family, careers, and you go down. But when it really comes down to it, at least as a father, that's a difficult thing to say, is to say God first, family second. Because there are nobody on this earth that I love more than my family, than my kids, than my wife. But sometimes God calls us to do things that are uncomfortable. And I'll tell you what, Um, it's easy to say that when we're talking about good things. Yes, we're going to put God first because we know he created us and we're going to go to church second and and our family third. Okay, great, that's great. But Jesus then says, okay, Randy, I think you're being called to go into harm's way with your family. That's a difficult thing to follow. 
You know, I have a friend. And, and God does that. I have friends who have grown up in the Philippines, in Muslim parts of the world, giving the gospel where they are in danger every day. And he grew up that way. And then he came back to the States for college, and that's where I met him. But guess what? God, God called him and his family and their kids back into the Philippines to minister. And, uh, you know, a few years ago when we heard about a few missionaries that were kidnapped and, and killed in the Philippines, it made me nervous because it's in the same area that they're serving. God called them into harm's way. So God is asking us to put our family second to him to see where he calls us. Let's keep going through this. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I'll tell you what, the cross is the ultimate sign of submission and humility. We talked about the passion of the cross earlier, and I just remember the scene in the movie where Jesus was carrying that cross through the streets down the Via Dolorosa up to Calvary. It wasn't a very pleasant thing for Jesus. People were spitting on him. People were hitting him. People were calling out insults to him. People were cursing the God that is his father. But he carried his cross and walked through. We've got to count the cost. Let's keep on going through this. The next section turns a little bit. And I like it because it talks about counting the cost. It says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build it and was not able to finish it. We need to count the cost now. We need to be able to stand strong. During VBS, we had all our kids saying, Stand strong. We need to be able to stand strong in the hard times. We need to be able to have the faith. We need to be able to know what God's Word says to guide us through. We need to count the cost now so that others don't see us and say, Wow, what is Randy doing? He doesn't know what he's doing, and he's in this time... He built this whole house. Who would build a church and not be able to know if you could finish the work? You start it, and all of a sudden there's this beautiful building sitting out there, but guess what? We couldn't finish the inside because we didn't count the cost. Count the cost. Know what Jesus is asking of you. Then it continues. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the others are still far away, he would send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. What is the cost? What are we getting into here? And if we're not ready, if we're not prepared, last week Paul talked about being girded up. If we can't be girded up, if the cost is too high, we need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. Help me. Prepare me. And then, the last part. So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. (laughs) 
give up everything. That's a pretty big statement. Things got serious real fast. It's obviously here that as it's being written, we want to narrow things down pretty quickly as to what God is calling us to. None of you can be my disciples unless you give up all his own possessions. Lest we all panic and go put our heart, our houses on the market, and all the realtors in the audience are getting a little excited here. The key words here are to give up. And in the original text, this is translated apotasso. It's in Greek, which means to give up. But in this case, and if you look at the tense, it does not mean that we need to sell everything right now that we have. It's a matter of the heart. It means that we need to yield control and a right of ownership. We must allow the Lord to control everything we have. He may ask us to give up something. Or he may allow us to keep it. Again, it's a heart issue. What are those things in our lives that are drawing us close to the Lord? And what are those things in our lives that are putting up a barrier between us and the Lord? Hear Paul's heart on this from Philippians 3, 7-8. through 8. But whatever gain I have, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I love this quote by Francis Chan. God does not call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust Him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble. We'll be in trouble if He doesn't come through. To trust Him so completely, that is faith. To stand in a place where we know that we won't succeed if it isn't for Christ. That's faith. God is calling us to that level of sacrifice. That's not comfortable, but sometimes life isn't comfortable. Sometimes God's call isn't comfortable. I have a friend, and after he graduated from college, he uh, moved to Atlanta, Georgia. His name is Jay Lakin. And uh, he made a great life for him and his family. And nobody would say that Jay wasn't living the crucified life. He gave of his money. He gave of his time. He went on mission trips. And one, uh, one year he felt that God was calling him to go on a mission trip to Africa with his family. And so they did. They went on a mission trip to Africa. And what he thought was going to just be a two-week process, God used that to change his life. And I want to show you a little video right now about his story and how God has moved him. So let's watch that together. 
when Jay and Beth went to Africa, they had no idea that God was going to prompt them to give up everything that they knew. They had worked hard to build their house, to establish, you know, they have a family with four kids. They were living the American dream. They were serving in their church. They were doing mission trips. Each and every one of us would have said, wow, what an awesome couple that is. They're doing exactly what God wants. But God said to them, no, your crucified life looks different. We're asking you to sell that house. And you, ah, look at that motorhome. That's not such a bad deal. That's a nice motorhome. Well, for one week it is, maybe two, three. After that, it's a motorhome that's really tight with four people in it. And I'm pretty sure that Jay and Beth didn't say, Woo! I get to go up this morning and go under that bridge and deal with people who have been really hit hard in their life. It's not a very pleasant job sometimes. I know you saw some pictures of those sleeping bags. I can't believe they were laundered last week. But that's where God called them to go. Let's turn. There's one more passage that I want to look at right now, and it's in Galatians. Galatians 5, 16 through 25. There's some stuff in this passage that you're going to recognize, and there's a lot of stuff in this passage that is really, really challenging. Verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these things are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. These things are in opposition to one another. You've got the ways of the flesh, and they're on this side, and you have the ways of the Spirit, and on this side. You know, in business, we look at a transaction, and we say, let's meet in the middle, and we think we're successful. But in this spiritual walk that Christ has for us, we don't meet in the middle. Our lives need to come full circle into the will of Christ. There is no middle. Christ doesn't move. He's there, and we come to Him. They're polar opposites. We need to walk in the ways of the Spirit. So what are those? How does that look? What does that feel like? We start out by saying, this is what it's not. Okay? And I started reading this, and I'm moving along, and it says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. And I'm like, whew, we're going pretty good here. I don't... I'm doing well. And then we go to idolatry. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't have any Asher poles around. We're good. Wait a second. The definition of idolatry is anything that we put first and foremost in front of Christ. Now that changes the game a little bit, doesn't it? Because all of us have things in our lives that we put there. Whether we want to admit it or not, there are things in our life that we put before what God wants us to do. I guess it gets a little difficult. Sorcery, not a sorcerer. Emnities, uh, that's one of those words we don't use. What in the world is an emnity? You know, we don't, we don't use that word in our conversation. If you look at it and what they were saying in the Greek, what it means is disagreement. Eh. Yeah, I've done that before once or twice. You know, Tracy might tell you that I've done that before once or twice yesterday. Um, quarrels, is, that's strife. 
I think that's another one. Jealousy. I, mm, do we ever get jealous of what our neighbors have? Outbursts of anger. At least I don't deal with that. Oh, wait a second. I do deal with that one. Disputes. In the Greek, it's translated erethe, which means this, selfish ambition combined with hostility. Disputes are selfish. And we get hostile about them. And then it keeps going along, and we talk about dissension, disunity. You know, the Scripture is really clear on unity. How good and pleasant it is when we gather together in unity and praise the Lord. And yet, sometimes we're not unified, are we? And then it keeps going down. Dissensions and then factions. Factions is, uh, if you look back at the text, I wanted just to see to where he was going with that. And it means to form small groups. In the life of a church, how many times does that happen? And I'm not talking about a small group ministry. I'm talking about groups within the church that become almost like a clique, but it's a, a little ministry group, but it's exclusive, and don't you're not part of that, and we are a part of that. And that's the in crowd, and I'm not in the in crowd, but you're in the in crowd. And I'll tell you what, factions will divide the church and break down ministry more than anything that I've ever seen. We are called together in unity to praise the Lord. And then it keeps going. Let me keep going here quickly. Envying, drunkenness, carousing. Carousing is an interesting word. We don't use that. It actually, if you look back, it means a village festival with unrestrained indulgence. It's an interesting word, isn't it? But how many times do we 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 kind of compromise what we do when we're with people and 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 that might fit into carousing. We we look at our beliefs and our structure and we say, well, I can bend it this time when I'm with friends. God calls us to live our life all the time. And then he says carousing and the things like these which I forewarn you and just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, yikes. We need to clear a heart of this stuff. And it's only through grace. And it's only through Jesus. And it's only through the cross that our heart can be cleared. We are not capable. We're capable of a lot of stuff in this list. But we are not, in our own strength, capable of clearing our heart. It's only through the cross And then it changes a little bit and it starts talking about what God loves. And people call these the fruit of the Spirit. I want to take a look at an image here. I want to take a look at this tree. It's a nice tree. So who can tell me what kind of tree it is? I can. But it's a nice tree. Now let me show you the next image. Oh, now we can tell what kind of tree it is. And why can we tell that? Because of the fruit. The fruit identifies who we are. And that's what God is saying in this passage. These are the things that make you 
stand out as believers. Now let's take a look at the next slide. And I thought this slide was really telling. The fruit shines out. But the tree on the left is the tree without fruit. And I asked Paul Nunn to do this for me, and I gave him the passage, and I kind of said, you know, go for it, and let's see what we got. And, and this is the image that he, he brought back to me, and it was striking to me, and it wasn't something that I had told him I wanted to see, and it's something that happened. But on this side, we've got bright and light and fruit. And on this side, we've got darkness. So life without the fruit of the Spirit is filled with darkness. So this, a lot of you should know this, because in Awana and at camp and a few other places, we all stand up and we sing, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Woo! Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Okay, so we do that over and over again, but what does it really mean? You know, most of these are pretty straightforward. Love, joy. Joy seems to be straightforward. But we need to be filled with the joy of the Lord. If His Spirit fills us up, our countenance can't be in contrast to that. Joy is something that has to stand out, has to be, has to be there for all to see. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Peace is one that stands out to me. Peace in times of storm. And I'll tell you what, peace can be hard. When your life is rocked, peace can be hard. There was a hymn that was written about peace. And it says this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. This hymn was written by Horatio Spafford. He lived back in 1871 just south of us in Chicago. He was a real estate attorney. When his son was four, he died of scarlet fever. So Horatio just totally jumped into his work. And guess what? The Chicago fire hit. He was a real estate attorney, and he lost his fortune. So he, he worked and worked and worked, and in November of 1873, he sent his wife and his four daughters to Europe. And as they were crossing, the ship that they were on collided with another ship, and the ship sunk. And his wife survived, barely conscious. All four daughters were gone, and he received a telegram that said, I'm here, no other survivors. So immediately he was dispatched. He said, business is done, I'm going over. And the captain woke him up as he was going over the spot where that approximate area where the ship sunk. And that's where he wrote that song. And when you think of the chorus, you think, only through the Lord can we have this peace. 
It says, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. So I just pray that as we go through the storms of life, God gives us that peace. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The gospel really requires a response. We've heard the word of God now. We really have two choices. We can choose to embrace the cross in all that it requires, in all that it is, in good times and in bad, in challenging times as God calls us to places that we never knew we would go before. We can choose that life. Or we can choose the other life away from the cross. That that life that really just says, now, later, not for me now. I'm not ready for that. But it's a yes or no answer. Yes, no. The crucified life is a difficult journey. It's far easier for us to be satisfied with who we are. Hold on to ourself and let the rest fade away. Faith calls us to be constantly refined. You know, in my life, this verse should read, I am being crucified with Christ daily because I take one step forward, another step forward, and then I go, oh, shoot. And then I take another step forward and, oh, back. We need to be refined daily in Jesus Christ. We need to eliminate self, and that takes pruning, and that's painful. I am crucified with Christ. Crucifixion is horrible. It's difficult. It's hard. I just don't think it's a coincidence that Paul used that word. Peter, who's just a normal guy, fisherman, not educated, rough. Paul was educated. He was brilliant. Peter was not. God called him to preach the first sermon in the Acts church in Acts 2. The Spirit fell on him and he moved in a way that only he could. And when it was done, and this is the key, there was a response. I want to read Acts 2, 27-38. And it says, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. He's given us that promise. But we need to take action today. We need to repent. So there's two questions I want you to consider as we close. Have you began walking in the crucified life? Have you entered into a relationship with Christ. If the answer is no, 
And the Lord is pricking your heart today. Today is the day. Today is the day for you. If the answer is yes, God's blessed me and I'm one of His, then you need to ask yourself, am I being crucified with Christ daily? Am I coming to His Word daily? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer Randy who lives. But Jesus Christ lives in me. And the life would I now live here in the flesh, I only live by faith in the Son of God. He loved me so much. He gave Himself up for me. This question demands a response. And I wish I could stand before you and say, I've arrived, I'm done. I'm living the crucified life all the time. But we can't. We need to come to His throne. So today I want to give you a chance to respond. And it's something that's just between you and the Lord. So as Tony plays, let's quiet our hearts. Let's bow our heads. Let's examine what God spoke to us this morning. What do we need to change? What do we need to do to fully live the crucified life? Let's pray.